coming up on today's episode of the St. Petersburg Foodies Podcast. I'll be honest with you, wine's actually very, very simple in comparison to beer. Mm-hmm. It, it's, yeah. it, it takes most time. people don't realize that. Yeah, it, it takes time, but it's a super, super simple process. And frankly, we have beers that take just as long as wine, but are, is way more complicated. Or barbecue spots in Southern Barbecue, you're going to have Memphis, you know, you have the Carolinas, and then you're really going to have like Kansas City. Like those are really kind of the big three. And then your fourth mm-hmm. one is going to be Texas. But Texas is like, I don't even consider that Southern Barbecue. That's a whole game. That's a whole different thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> like Florida's not the South. They invited me to volunteer a couple times. And then about six months later, they're like, hey, do you need a job? And I was like, I mean, not technically, but sure. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, they hired me like literally as I'm like walking through the brewery, showing a friend the place. The only thing the wholesaler then wanted was package. So we had to put everything mm-hmm. in cans. So everyone in the entire world stopped putting things in kegs and immediately bought every single piece of aluminum that was sitting in any warehouse in any corner of the planet and then filled them up with products. So So it was the toilet paper of the brewing industry. It's 100% (laughs) what it was. It was exactly (laughs) what it was. Holy crap. Coming to you from St. Petersburg, Florida, you're listening to the St. Petersburg Foodies Podcast. The show that's the authority on where to eat in St. Pete. Here are your hosts, Kevin Godby and Lori Brown. Hi, I'm Kevin Godby. And I'm Lori Brown. Thank you for tuning in today. Welcome to the St. Petersburg Foodies Podcast. The podcast that's it when it comes to restaurants and food information in St. Pete. And be sure to check out our website, stpetersburgfoodies.com. There you'll find great information including restaurant reviews, the largest St. Pete happy hour list ever created and kept updated, and information on the newest restaurants in town. We are locals that live in downtown St. Pete, and we've been eating our way through this town for years, so you don't have to, but you should. We have a new episode every Tuesday. Just hit the subscribe button and you'll get notified when an episode is ready for download, and then you can listen to them anytime you want, like on your morning jog or commute to work. On today's show, our featured guest is Christopher Johnson. Chris is the co-owner and head brewer of St. Petersburg's first microbrewery, Green Bench Brewing. After Chris, we stroll on over to Greenstock, our favorite salad place for lunch. We We have have a a great great show, show, so stick stick around. One of our favorite places to go eat in St. Pete is Engine Number no. 9. They've been a staple in downtown St. Pete coming up on seven years, and they are famous for their unique and tasty burger creations. As a matter of fact, they are on the St. Pete Foodies list of best burgers in St. Pete. They also made the best hot dogs list, the best chilies, and the best wings in St. Pete. Aside from the food, Engine Number no. 9 is a great sports bar with lots of TVs, beer, and wine. And you can even get a regular old cheeseburger, too, so you can bring your non-adventurous eater friends. Check out Engine Number 9 at the corner of MLK and 1st Avenue North in downtown St. Pete. Their burgers can't be beat. Ramen is the ultimate comfort food. And Booyah Ramen on the 900 block of Central Avenue is my go-to. It's so freaking good. The broth is like a silky blanket to warm up your mouth. 
and the hearty proteins were just mushrooms for vegetarians, it'll have you saying, ooh, mommy, the umami is making my eyes roll back in my head. My favorites are the pork belly and the short rib. Mmm. And then there's the noodles. O-M-G. Go get the best ramen in St. Pete at Booyah Ramen at 911 Central Avenue in the Edge District of downtown St. Pete. Do ya, Booyah? Please welcome the co-owner and head brewer at St. Petersburg's first microbrewery, Christopher Johnson. Welcome, Chris. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. And I guess I should have said it's Green Bench Brewing. Yeah. What happened there? I I just assumed everybody already knows that. (laughs) And what's really cool is, and and I want to talk about you a little bit before we get deep into Green Bench, but I just, I'm compelled up front because I think this is so cool. You guys, the name Green Bench has a historical reference to St. Petersburg. And then you also have your your second tap room that I think that opened uh, earlier this year or late last year. Yeah, it actually opened in March of 2019. So it's been a year and a half. Okay. Webb's City Cellar. That's the second tap room. And that also has a historical meaning. Green Bench, I already knew because way back when, and we don't have to go into the entire story, but St. Petersburg sidewalks were lined with a whole bunch of green benches. Correct. There's that. Now in Webb City, what I knew is I, I live in McNulty Lofts and there we have his historic photos in the hallways. And one of them is the, the Webb's City. So I've seen this black and white photo and it's a says the world's most unusual drugstore, but that's all. I never explored that until yesterday when I was preparing to talk to you, Chris. And it's actually on my Facebook. You should go look at it. Uh, just go to facebook.com slash kevin.godby. You'll find mine and it's, it's a public post, but it was touted as the world's most unusual drugstore. It started in 1926 in St. Pete in a 17 by 28 foot space, which is, I think, probably smaller than one of your fooders. It's like three blocks, <laughs> right? No, but then it grew and it took up all of 2nd to 4th Avenue South between 7th and 10th Streets. And I drew it out on a Google map right, and that's, cool. that's what's on my Facebook post. So it, I think that's pretty cool that you guys do that. And, and I found in a Tampa Bay Times article about Web City Cellar, they said, Green Bench consulted with the St. Petersburg Museum of History and acquired a few pieces of Webb's memorabilia, like the sign depicting a strong man carrying a globe. And visitors even placed their ciders on coasters advertising the world's most unusual cellar. Yeah, That's yeah. Cool. Yeah, so um, I guess the the sort of history there for, for us, and then and then obviously to echo the actual history that, that you were mentioning, um, we've actually been using the Web City Cellar name uh, pretty much since we opened. Um, and it was a brand of beers. So we opened in September of 2013 and we installed a, um, I mean, I guess from the outside looking in, it was essentially like an insulate, like a big closet. Um, but it was this insulated room that we made literally with drywall, tons of foam insulation. And, um, and we put a, we, we basically, uh, put a, 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 a wall unit, AC unit in there and then had like an overriding like device, like this thing called a cool bot. So we could actually get it colder than what it's settings set to. So we can hold that entire room, um, year round if as low as, you know, 45 degrees Fahrenheit, if we wanted to. 
but we actually cool, used hang to, out in there. Yeah, <laughs> we, we used to we used to actually keep it about 62, 63 Fahrenheit year round. And uh, it could hold about um, uh, I want to say it was 30 or 26 or so, 26 to 30 wine barrels we could hold in there. And we were doing these mixed culture, you know, sort of uh, beers. Basically, it means beers that have uh, bacteria and, and yeast in co-fermentation. Uh, that create acidity and complex flavor profiles, but they, they take a long time to age. So we needed this like climate controlled space because Florida is really hot and, and it, it sort of goes up and down as far as the temperatures too and humidity. So we wanted to be able to control that and have somewhat of a stable environment. And so about a year after we opened, we released our first bottles that came out of that cellar and it was called uh, For the Mad Ones, which was also a reference to Jack Kerouac, um, which is, um, you know, he actually passed away here in St. Petersburg. He lived here for years right. and um, they do tours and stuff, the Kerouac tours and, you know, his favorite bars down the road, the Flamingo, um, I think over on MLK, but um, like down the street from the brewery. Um, so that was based off of, off of that name came from him. But the idea was that this is going to be like, this is for the mad ones. This, this style of beer is something that uh, St. Pete, Florida, especially let alone Tampa Bay or even frankly, Florida as a whole back in 2013 had really experienced before. There were some farmhouse breweries, things using like wild yeast and Britannomyces, but nothing with like mixed culture, uh, barrel aged beers really at all. And so we were kind of exploring this thing that most people wouldn't understand. And so we were trying to come up with a name for the actual seller. And actually, we, you know, we did a bunch of research and, and at the time it was one of our bartenders who came up to me and he's like, man, you know, what about Web City? And I was like, oh man, that makes so much sense. And we already, we already kind of knew the history of Web City a little bit. You know, uh, we're all for the most part from St. Pete. I was born in Tennessee, but I've been here since I was 10 and my two business partners are, have born and raised St. Petersburg. So their families all remember, remember Web City and yeah, so uh, we, we named it the Web City Cellar. And so we had this series called the Web City Cellar Series. And so our first five years, four or five years of existence, we were releasing at least once a year beers from that series uh, that were all barrel aged mixed culture or just, or just, you know, wild beers. And so that's actually where, where we decided to grab the name. And then you fast forward a few, a couple of years after we opened, we had the space next door was a building that we acquired and we're trying to figure out what we wanted to do with it. But since we were downtown segment, you know, surrounded by you know a bunch of businesses that were popping up because when we opened there wasn't as much traffic around us and right. now it's now it's crazy busy yeah so we decided to try to capitalize on that so we said let's let's build a second concept what if we turn this into a seller and actually expanded the program that we started you know five six years prior well actually when we were talking about this it was only a year and a half or so at that moment but uh you fast forward five six years then we open the space where we're expanding upon that concept creating a dedicated tasting room um, an educational experience uh, based upon all of our experience previously having tried to sell these beers to a market that was completely unexposed to this type of beer, which was a huge challenge, which it went hand in hand for us because the, the, our names are, are very much, you know, they, they all have meaning behind them um, in some way. And not everyone's right. going to see that. Sometimes it's just surface level, uh, which is fine. But for those that are interested in maybe talking about it or exploring it, we're always here to kind of have those conversations. And we feel that way about our beer too, especially in Web City Cellar. Yeah, that's awesome. That it's, is it, really cool. It's, it's almost like a lifestyle, really. Yeah. And a, a subculture too, as well. Yeah, we, you guys do a lot of really cool stuff. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. I was going to say, you know, at the forefront of what we do, we, we get excited, obviously, about beer because that's easy to get excited about. But um, but but even in, in the segment of beer, we care very much about conversations and we care very much about learning and we care much about growth and um, and and exploration. So 
I think no matter what we do, whether it's the name of our business down to, you know, a beer we released last week, there's there's some sort of substance behind all of it that I think makes it so much more enjoyable when it's understood and heard and, and experienced that way. Right. Yeah. You guys do such cool stuff. And I, I don't think many people realize that what you do isn't much different than being a winemaker or a chef even. And you have made wine. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's... Yeah, I would I would argue sometimes that it's far more difficult than those other two things. Yeah. It's it's almost like being a scientist too. It's absolutely yeah. I, I think beer. You know, it's funny because I, I I'm a huge wine fan and 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 spirits and and obviously culinary as well. Um, and I cook a lot, but I, I would say that beer encompasses all of the things, all of those things, and a lot of those things don't encompass other parts of them. Does that make sense? Like like in wine, mm-hmm. in wine, there's some. I'll be honest with you. Wine's actually very, very simple in comparison to beer. Mm-hmm. It, it's yeah. it, it takes most time. people don't realize that. Yeah, it, it takes time, but it's a super, super simple process. And frankly, we have beers that take just as long as wine, but are is way more complicated um, and nuanced and difficult to to do than than say something that a lot of people would consider a more elegant maybe product. And but sometimes you know I think that we do a really good job at challenging that notion. Yeah. Totally. So let's, before we go dive deep down, I was, and I said this before we started recording, telling you that uh, I took the better part of yesterday to read a bunch of stuff and study up. And then I realized that if we were going to talk about everything that has to do with beer, let alone mead and cider, we'd need like 10 interviews with you. So before we go down that rabbit hole, let's find out a little bit about you. Uh, You you said you are, you were born in Tennessee. What, where Tennessee? Yeah, I'm from Memphis. Ah. Oh, nice. Do you get back there at all? Uh, not this year, but um, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I pretty much go back at least once a year. Usually in the in the springtime, I'm home. Um, I actually usually go back. It, it works out great because one of my favorite breweries is up there. That they're called Wiseacre, um, and they they open like a month before we did. So, um, and I know the guys that own that really well. They grew up in Memphis too. So, I go home see my family and and hang out with those guys, make beer with them, and yeah, it's cool. Oh, that's fun. So, your family's still there. What brought you to? to Memphis or to St. Pete from Memphis at 10. Yeah. Most of, most of my family is, uh, most of my family is still back home. Okay. But, um, what we do is like, well, my, my, my father lives here. My stepmom lives here. Gotcha. Um, but two of my aunts just, or one of my aunts been here for a while. One of them just moved down. So I've got like some family here in town, but mm-hmm. like my mother, um, my sister, actually my brother moved here too recently, but my brother, my sister, my grandfather, cousins, uncles, nieces, nephews, everyone's at home. They're back home in Memphis. Cool. So you get the best of both worlds then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're all from Memphis, like, you know, my dad as well, obviously. And, um, we all, I mean, that's always home for, I think all of us, but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I, I get to, I get to go home every year, which is really, really nice. Obviously I, I missed it this year, but, um, right. yeah, I, I love going back, eating barbecue and listening to music and, yeah, isn't there a specific Memphis style of barbecue? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I say it, like, like, well, so so Memphis is mostly known for dry rub. So you know, we don't really we, we have sauce, but our sauce is generally on the side. And sometimes there's like you know wet sort of ribs and stuff. But for the most part, we like to make dry rub. And then, mm-hmm. um, so for example, like your your sort of big four food or barbecue spots in Southern barbecue, you're going to have Memphis. You know, you have the Carolinas. And then you're really going to have like Kansas City. Like those are really kind of the big three. And then your fourth mm-hmm. one's going to be Texas. 
But Texas is like, I don't even consider that Southern barbecue. That's a whole game. That's a whole different thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> like Florida's not the South. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Texas is where you got to think. If you're talking about like the other four or five places, you know, if you call the two Carolinas separate. So you have North, South Carolina, you got Memphis or, or you can say Tennessee as a whole, but Memphis is really the hotbed. Um, and then you have, you know, sort of Kansas City barbecue. Texas is the only one that does beef. So it's so it's it's really difficult to compare them because you're talking like a completely different style of of food. Uh, so they smoke, sure, they smoke meat, but they're but honestly, like yeah, they'll smoke pork every once in a while. But in the other four places, they don't mess with beef at all. Really, those are all pork. It's all pork. It's ribs, pulled pork, sausages, sides, and it depends on your sauce, depends on your rub. That's what changes the the sort of regionality. Right. Interesting. Right. Yeah, we had Ray Lampy on. Yeah, so he he t- taught us about all that stuff too. <laughs> yeah, almost across the street from you guys. Oh yeah, yeah, that's that's my that's that's a, he's a good dude. Uh, he's a friend of mine. We um we actually make a beer uh, with them. We make a a, a Munich Helles, uh, like a traditional light, basically uh, German style pale lager, a really clean, light, easy drinking beer. Works really well with with uh, smoking meat. Speaking of local beers, I'm actually a, a few weeks ago we had the uh, COO of uh, Schramsberg Vineyards on. And we made sure that we drank a bottle of Schramsberg sparkling wine while we were interviewing him. Right now, I'm drinking the Easy Rollin' Ale that you guys make for Rollin' Oats. And it's got that nice grapefruit essence. Man, I'm surprised you still found that. We made that beer a while ago. That beer was made in like the summer. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I go to Rollin' Oats and I like that you can buy singles, even though I think I, I bought a whole six pack of this. But I'll fill up an entire shopping cart full of different beers because sure. I can get such an assortment. And yeah, I think I, I have, this is uh, there's two left in the fridge after this one. Rolling Oats is definitely the spot. Obviously we've really enjoyed that partnership as well. So we make that beer with them easy rolling every summer. Um, so it's like a, basically like a, you know, a, a really nice, clean pale ale, um, good hop character using Azaka Citra hops. Um, we use a little bit of grapefruit in there as well. Yes. You could definitely taste that. Yeah. It's, it's an, it's a really nice beer. We we're really proud of that one. Awesome. So did you first get involved in brewing uh, when you were at Cigar City? Uh, sort of. I actually was a home brewer first, and then um, I was home brewing for about six months. And by that time, I had sort of become friends with the people at Cigar City a lot because, you know, I was there really weren't that many places to go back then. You know, you're talking 11 years ago, 12 years ago, maybe. Well, actually, yeah, maybe 13 now. So, yeah, it's I, I was I was in college. I started home brewing as a hobby. And then you know, the only brewery, there were a couple breweries around us, you know, I would go to Tampa Bay Brewing Company, they were like the oldest one in town. Um, and I, I've always loved their beers. And then Cigar City was like the new kid on the block that was just doing some crazy stuff, you know, like, their IPA was just like, way different than anything else you could find in the market, they were making, you know, just like, basically, they called it a brown ale, but it was like this brown porter that was like a little bit softer than a porter, but it was Maduro. And it was like, extremely flavorful they just had a completely different complexity to them that like you you really weren't finding you know you know we were really coming off of especially in florida you think like 2007 to 2010 we were we were basically what the rest of the country or at least some big beer areas in the country were in like the early 90s they were coming off of just like pub style beers like american pub style ales um, which are delicious and great but there is there there was a huge evolution in the mid to late nineties for most of the other uh, sort of beer beer areas in the country. You know, you think your San Diego's, your Denver's, Philadelphia, uh, you know, 
some Northeast, but it was mostly West Coast stuff that was kind of uh, growing far more rapidly than, say, what we were. So we were way behind. And then they were kind of this brewery that was doing stuff like, you know, what other places had already evolved to. So they were pushing the envelope, basically. Very much so. They, I mean, they were they were putting out stuff that none of us had ever experienced before. You right, know, it was, right. It was incredible. And so we all gravitated towards it. I became friends with them. They invited me to volunteer a couple times. And then about six months later, they're like, hey, do you need a job? And I was like, I mean, not technically, but sure. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, they hired me like literally as I'm like walking through the brewery, showing a friend the place. Because back then you could just do that. You uh-huh. just like walk right in and be like, oh, this is this and point around and hey, Wayne. And they'd walk by You're like, hey, hey, what's up, Chris? And you know, it's just like you just do whatever the hell you wanted to. It's so weird. And then, <laughs> yeah. And so then they I worked there for about a year and then I was uh, actually I got fired and then um, <laughs> ended up getting a job at a homebrew shop down the road that actually I bought my original homebrew equipment from. And then they wanted to open a brewery. So they brought me on to help move the shop. We got a new location. We built that up. And then I basically ended up running the small brewery there. Uh, We built like this one barrel system, really small. And then I wrote recipes there. And then once I did like the licensing and I went through all that process on how to get TTB approval and ABT state approval, and I saw the process, I was like, oh, I could do this. Like, I want to open my own brewery now. Like, this is right, right. And so that's, that's kind of where the spark really hit me. Like, you know, I think I could do it. So what did you do before? Uh, well, before that, I was just in college. Um, I mean, I was, uh, <laughs> you know, I was I, I was homebrewing while I was in college. You know, I was right, actually right. working at Cigar City while I was in college. And, gotcha. So you were in college when they and, hired you. At- yeah. And now you are part of Beer College, too. We're going to talk about that. But this yeah. sounds like a good, good, good spot for a little break. Pay some bills. We'll be right back. And we're going to talk about what I'm calling Beer College and a lot of the other cool stuff. We'll be right back. Hey, foodies. Do you know about the Zest podcast? If you're listening to us, you should be listening to them too. They're part of the Tampa NPR station, WUSF 89.7. On The Zest, you'll learn new recipes, baking tips, and barbecue secrets. You'll hear about what's ripe, what's growing, and what's in season. The Zest podcast is hosted by Robin Sussingham, an award-winning reporter and producer who's also an avid home cook and baker. Robin's a native Floridian and has been searching out flavors and the fascinating stories behind them from Key West to Pensacola. Learning to care for a sourdough starter and learning to bake sourdough breads really speaks to people in a very deep way. It's part of our collective history and we're getting back to our roots and our self-sufficiency. Just like us, the Zest podcast has interviews with chefs and restaurateurs and talks about food and recipes covering the Tampa Bay area and throughout Florida. It's what we listen to when we're not doing our own show. Check out the Zest podcast at thezestpodcast.com. St. Pete is all about local, and this year we celebrate a local legend's 25th anniversary. Roland Oats Market and Cafe was founded in July of 94 by Bert Swain and Larry Schwartz. From the beginning, Roland Oats has made a commitment to provide St. Pete customers with the finest quality organic whole foods, nutritional supplements, and body care products at the most reasonable prices possible. And now they have a South Tampa location too. We go there for many items, but they are the only place that we go to buy our raw probiotics and other supplements. They have the best organic whole food selection in town. And on the flip side of that, they also offer a fantastic selection of wines and an unparalleled selection of local craft beer. 
Rollin' Oats has a cafe open daily which offers delicious sandwiches, burgers, soups, salads, bowls, wraps, entrees, and fresh-made smoothies, along with a variety of prepared and packaged take-home meals located in the market itself. Do you pride yourself with supporting local businesses? Well, put your money where your mouth is and get on into Rollin' Oats today. Rollin' Oats St. Pete is located at 2842 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Street North. And in South Tampa, you'll find them at 1021 North McDill Avenue. Check them out on the web at rollinoats.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-N oats.com. And Rollin' Oats offers online ordering with curbside pickup. We are back! We are back! We are back with Chris Johnson from Green Branch Brewing. And... When we went on the break, I was talking about beer college because you said you were in college and then you kind of became a brewer, which is pretty cool. You are a founding faculty member of USF St. Petersburg's Brewing Arts Program. How cool is that? I mean, if it, when I went to college, if they had that, then- We didn't you know. have anything cool like that when I went to school. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I guess it's one of those things where you just, you know, I you got to make it or else, it, you know, before it doesn't exist, you just got to start doing it. Right. So, uh, I, I, you know, I really, I really was really fortunate just to be in the right place at the right time for that one because, you know, we opened the brewery. Um, the actual person that really started the program, his name is Jim Leonard, and he, w- he was a, he's a retired chemist. He used to work at um, – he actually was uh, teaching at USF, but then he also used to work uh, for Campbell Soup and for years. And so he retired and he, you know, the brewery started opening up and he was frequenting us and – you know, was fascinated behind the science and the, the labs that we had and got us in touch with a bunch of professors at USF. And then we ended up like starting internship programs where, you know, bio students and chem, micro chems, microbiology students and, you know, uh, uh, chemistry students would come through and we would, we would, you know, have, they would get credit hours just to work in the brewery and, and work in the lab. And then eventually he was kind of like, Hey, we should start like a program. And I was like, well, I mean, if you have the right connections and, then he invited me and a bunch of other brewers in the Tampa Bay area to, to a meeting and he, and him, and he brought the, the Dean of arts and sciences from USF St. Petersburg uh, there. And he was like, Hey, if this is going to, we would love to do it. We don't want to start a program. If we want to do it, we'll need you to do it. And we, you know, what do you guys think it needs? Let's start talking about it. And so we just had like a, you know, 45 minute hour long, just kind of session where we just talked about what it would look like, what it should look like, what's important, what's not. It went to email at that point. We started talking through it. It took us about a year to kind of formulate what the curriculum would look like. Some people wanted to do it. Some people didn't want to do it. Um, ended up that I was teaching more of the class than anyone else. I was teaching like a third of the entire course for the first few cohorts. Um, and that's, that's, that's evened out a little bit more since, but, but I basically, you know, I was one of the faculty members right when we started. And so, um, yeah, it's been, it's been really cool. It's been really rewarding. We have over 80% of our, you know, graduates end up moving on to get placed in jobs, whether they start, they work in breweries or they start their own breweries. Some have started their own breweries. Um, uh, some of them never took the course to even get a job. They were just like enthusiast homebrewers retired, wanted to learn. So they just took the course anyway. So even though that, that 80% is actually frankly better than what it, what it actually, what it really is. Cause a lot of them have no aspirations of, right. you know, of doing it. Um, anyway, yeah. So that it's been good. Could actually be a hundred percent. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. It's yeah I, might, I might have to sign up for that sometime soon. <laughs> <laughs> so with the pandemic, have you had this year, any issues getting raw materials? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, no doubt. Uh, this has been a super challenging year. Uh, I would say, 
um, especially on the on the on this, definitely on the raw material side, um, probably the, the most ever. Uh, we we kind of so we opened in 2013. There was a huge like hop shortage that happened in like 2010. So I didn't really have to deal with that too much. I mean, I was I was working at a brewery, but we were so small that we could kind of get it from other breweries and stuff too. Right. Um, and so I, I can only imagine that this is is somewhat like what that was, but worse. Honestly, the, the raw material issue wasn't wasn't like grain. It wasn't hops. It wasn't water. It was downstream. It was aluminum. Oh wow! Um, there's a there is currently a global aluminum shortage. So you got to you got and it's it's really bad. Like I I have a friend that works for Coca Cola, and um, him and I were talking like uh, two months ago or so, and I had heard I'd read this online um, on one of my technical sort of newsletters that I'm you know subscribed to, and it was saying that like Budweiser had cut like four four brands by August. By 2021, they were going to end it in 2021, just cut them completely because they just had to focus on making sure they had inventory for their top brands. And he actually told me since that happened, they actually cut two more. And so this is happening to Pepsi. This is happening to these massive companies worldwide that are wow. just having a downsize because they they can't uh, they can't count on the, the fact that the aluminum is going to be available. But so, there's also wow, – so wow. I totally missed that. But I also saw that uh, in general – and this goes back months – that you know, like mass market beer consumption was way up, just like you know, eating on your couch and watching TV was up. <laughs> yeah, but it was. Is that, I mean, is that part of is that part of the reason? Well, that's exactly what happened. So essentially, um, you got to think. So March, March is we're we're killing it. You know, we're just we're busy every day. It's our biggest month of the year every year. Um, it's the night before our biggest event every year, Food for Thought, and the shutdown basically happens like the evening before our event. We got people in town from all over the world about to have to throw this oh, big party. No. The city pulls our permit. Oh um, my God. Yeah. What, so we, what was the date on that? The 14th? Uh, it was the uh, the 16th of March. The 16th. Oh, jeez. Yeah, the, the 17th of March was our event on a Saturday. And oh. Friday Friday afternoon, like 4 or 5 p.m., the city message us said, we're pulling your permit for your event tomorrow. And so we had to cancel the event. Um, it was he- terrible. We lost a ton of money on that too because we obviously had to invest in it. But, but um, it could have been worse. And then um, refunded tickets, did all that mess. So then everything shut down, right? All of our wholesale, we immediately get emails from all of our wholesalers saying like, stop sending us beer. Oh no. We're canceling all orders. The only orders that we're going to take are going to be for core brands. And uh, within a week, they canceled completely all draft orders. And so the bulk of our sales and especially our margins come from draft sales and wholesale at the moment. Right. We're, we're getting closer, like cans were, were rising and they were getting, package was getting to a point where it was getting close to the same amount of dollar value, but, um, but we weren't there yet. And our draft completely died. April, we sold zero beer to the wholesalers wow. um, to the entire month. Also, our tasting room was shut down. So we were shut down half of March through April, May, June. Mid-June, we opened back up. We had to shut down again early July on the second shutdown. But what ultimately happened was is because all the bars shut down, all drafts stopped. The only thing the wholesaler then wanted was package. So we had to put everything mm-hmm. in cans. So everyone in the entire world stopped putting things in kegs <laughs> right. and immediately bought every single piece of aluminum that was sitting in any warehouse right. in any corner of the planet wow. and then filled them up with products. So – so it was the toilet paper of the brewing industry. It's one hundred percent what it was. It was exactly what it was. Holy crap! Exactly what it was. Holy wow. crap is right. <laughs> so, yeah. Crap. So so what about CO two? Did you have any trouble getting it? 
Yeah, CO2 was a shortage. Honestly, that didn't luckily so far that has not really trickled down to us too much. I think we're I think we're still in that like sort of zone where we don't use we still use a lot, don't get me wrong, right. but I think I think if we were if we were brewing twice as much beer as we're currently brewing, we would have really seen that hit. But I right. think because because we're we're in a good sort of barrelage level, a production level where it didn't really hit us. But I yeah. I know some friends who would hit real hard. Wow. Right. But ironically, those was the one, you know, it, it's, you know, it's pick your poison here a little bit, right? So I'd have some friends who make a lot more beer than we do. Actually, Wiseacres want to make a lot more beer than we do. Ironically, because they were a little bit bigger, their can shortage issues didn't hit them as hard as it hit us. So because we're a little guy uh, in comparison, they, you know, they, they already had an entire wall filled of empty cans, truckloads and truckloads on site. And they already had these orders put in with their, with, you know, crown who they use, we use ball here. And, but ball, you know, ball started now, granted, I'm thankful that ball has fulfilled our orders that we've ever put in, but our lead times have drastically increased. We used to be four, six week lead times. We're like 10, 15 week lead times now wow. on getting wow. cans. So we've been out of stock on a lot of stuff recently just because, we don't have the aluminum to put them in. Wow, that's crazy. So talking about raw materials, I noticed on at least a couple of your, maybe one beer and one mead maybe, that you say house yeast. You produce your own yeast? Not exactly. So house yeast really, so the yeast didn't originate here, right? It wasn't something that we we had in the house and we used. It was actually, so it started, it started legitimately from some of it from a lab, some of it from, you know, bottle drag. So other breweries essentially is where it came from or the wild. Uh, mm -hmm. But when we say house yeast, we basically, so you got to think when we first started, we, we were first brewing the Southeast of the country. You mentioned a fooder earlier. We're the first brewery in the Southeast of the country to ever have a fooder. And we had one when we first opened. Fooder is just, it's like a big barrel. It's a huge it's a tank. Huge barrel. And it's spelled F- O E D E R. Yeah, that's one of the spellings. There's also it's like F O U. It's one D, but there's also like F O U D R E. Oh. Um, so it's it depends because fooder is as you're saying it is a Dutch term, Dutch word. The other way is a French way they spell it, and so it's interchangeable. But there's few ways to spell it. Depends on what language you're, you're dealing with. It's it's so funny that this got brought up because I have this glass in my. Um, cabinet that I've been using lately it looks like a little tiny little snifter and it says fooder for thought on it and I didn't know what that was or where I got it it's a big ass barrel it's a big <laughs> barrel yeah so fooder, fooder for thought the, so fooder for thought came from this notion that like you know we I guess to go back to this one first we um we opened our doors to the fooder in 2013 I was super jazzed on it right we're the only only place in the southeast country to have one some of my favorite breweries in the in the country in the world had fooders and they were making some really exciting beers right before we opened and and uh, stuff that I was just like really 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 important like like excited about and um, and so I did a bunch of research talked to all of them they all helped me out a lot I even went to one of the breweries and worked with them on their fooders for a day and or a few days and they were great and then we got one a lot of people thought we we're absolutely crazy they're like dude you're gonna ruin everything what are you doing. And then like some of like the local breweries that were friends of mine, they're like, dude, what are you doing? So then we, we opened up, started making hundred percent oak fermented farmhouse sales and a custom built fooder. We actually had the fooder built with 75% French oak staves and 25% of them were American oak staves for this unique complexity. Then we added, we currently have four different yeast strains inside the fooder. One of the, the both of them are, are all four of them are what we call wild yeast strains, meaning they either they were sort of native wild strains that for a long time were considered sort of off flavors and wild infections into beers, 
or they were, uh, or the, yeah, essentially that's what they all were. But some of, some of them were, were, were strains that we thought everyone in the world kind of thought they were normal brewer's yeast. And I remember before we opened, I was using one a lot of, a lot. And it was, um, the name of the yeast actually was from this, from this lab called Y yeast in, in like Mount hood there in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And, um, they, uh, it was called 3711 French Saison yeast. And it supposedly originated from Brasserie Thierrier, which is a small brewery in like Northern France, which is one of my absolute favorite farmhouse breweries in the world. And, uh, it's run by this guy, him and his wife, his name's Daniel Thierrier. He's amazing. I've been there a couple times. Mm-hmm. So, this yeast strain behaves like all the other wild yeast strains that I'd used in the past, which wild yeast strains usually is the terminology is Britannomyces. So it's this wild yeast that used to infect it, it's it's huge in wine. It infects wines. Winery wineries are scared of it. It it used to infect beers. The first ones we found in like old ales in uh in Europe or usually in the UK. Uh they put beer in barrels for like a year, they'd come out and there was like this, you know this really cellared character. We found out later looking under a microscope that it wasn't actual brewer's yeast. It was this wild yeast known as Britannomyces clasinii. So our, our bear, our fooder has two Britannomyces cultures. Both are Bruxellensis derivatives, meaning Bruxellensis was the, were the ones from basically Brussels. So you got to think in the Zinna Valley in, in Belgium, uh, brewers are making Lambic, which is a spontaneous fermentation. And the main characteristic or the main yeast flavor profile in Lambic is Britannomyces. So they named it Bruxellensis after Brussels. So they call this diastaticus because it seems to convert all long chain carbohydrates and sugars that normal brewer's yeast can't convert and then ferment it out. Meaning it starts to re-ferment things that brewer's yeast, when brewer's yeast is done, it will continue to ferment. And oh, so wow. that's what that is. So anyway, get back to your original answer. So do you, do you get a higher alcohol uh you would you you will get a slightly higher alcohol content than what it was before it start you know where where the normal beer ended because you're gonna ferment out what was left behind. So 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 the la- the last few minutes have been very serious and technical. So I just yeah. want to interject that um, the carbonation in beer is basically yeast farts. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> it is. It is absolutely. And and I guess I don't know what you'd call alcohol then, but yeah. <laughs> but I do have I have one question that I don't understand. From all of this is you use this when you're brewing your beer, but if it's in somebody else's beer, they call it an infection. I don't understand. Yeah, it's because, well, it's, there's two, twofold there. If, if it was in my beer and it wasn't supposed to be there, it would also be an infection. Okay. So what does infection, when you say that about a beer, what does that mean? Is it skunky or? Well, no. Well, okay. So infection, infection to us just means it's infected by something that's not supposed to be there. It doesn't mean that it's bad necessarily. It just means that something is in here that wasn't supposed to be in here. So if I had Britannomyces or Saccharomyces diastaticus, which are both in my fooder, um, if I had them in my in Sunshine City IPA or Easy Rolling that you're drinking, right. I would call that an infection because okay. it infected It won't have the right flavor profile that you were going for. Exactly. It's in something okay. it wasn't supposed to be in. It's got infected it, right. the thing. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. It just means like, oh, damn it. We got, you know, we got this thing and this thing. It wasn't supposed to be there. Whereas- but the characteristics that these yeasts create, I think, are incredibly tasty. So when right. we say house yeast, it's because we opened with a fooder, we added these yeasts. I wasn't very confident when we first started that I would be able to keep that yeast healthy if I was harvesting it off a stainless tank, cleaning the tank, repitching it. 
harvesting right. off the sand, and then doing that over and over again. So I decided a fooder would make the most sense because we can actually leave the yeast in the fooder and it can live inside the oak. Right. It lives and in the wood. Yeah. It lives in the wood. So then ah. we we re we re-ferment over and over and over again on it. And we've gone up over a hundred generations, which means now it's evolved into a house yeast. Gotcha. So I'm probably in the in the life of this podcast uh two years now or something, I don't know, three years. Uh this will be probably the tenth or eleventh time I've mentioned the uh, Netflix um documentary salt fat acid heat (laughs) and in the salt episode i don't know if you've seen this uh chris uh i have i have i absolutely love that show yeah we've watched it like four or five times reminds me of when they're doing the soy Soy sauce sauce. and they have these big giant wooden barrel things that uh and and i think it might be yeast also that lives in there yeah yeah and it's also cool you're talking about enzymes that's one of the uh, starting points with cheese as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're all fer- they're all fermented uh, bever- or beverages. They're all just fermented foods, you know, of some kind. You know, whether it be cheese, yeah. whether it be kimchi, whether it be pickles, whether it be uh, coffee, whether it be uh, chocolate, whether it be um, yeah, all, all of those things are fermentation. Without fermentation, none of that exists. That, We'd be right. missing a lot of really good stuff. So, do you talk to your beer like they talk to the soy sauce? <laughs> um, no, not really. I don't really. Talk uh-huh. to the- so. <laughs> so what do you, what do you do with your, um, leftover, uh, you know, your used grain? Yeah, we have a farmer, uh, from about three, four hours North of here. He's a cattle farmer. He comes and picks it up once a week. So, that's um, awesome. yeah, we toss in a tote tank. He picks it up and his, his, his cows love it. Oh, that's great. It's awesome. Yeah. I, I read about that, that a lot of breweries do that. Yeah. And, and you guys, uh, also, uh, make in addition to beer, make, uh, mead, which is basically fermenting honey to dumb it down. And cider, which is fermented apples, to also dumb it down. And I like the name of the cider, I Am Brute, with an exclamation point, because mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. I Am Brute. <laughs> yeah, uh, so are we. Uh, those are, uh, those, uh, are, I would say that at least that first Guardians of the Galaxy is probably still my favorite of the Marvel movies, Marvel Universe movies. Uh, I've seen it so many. Soundtrack's I, I, amazing. Oh, I listen to it all the time. We listen to it we're brewing all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. That's awesome. I saw it like three times in theater when it came out. <laughs> oh, I, I bought it on uh, on Apple TV movies, and I've watched both of them probably 10 times. Awesome. I, and last night I was watching part two, and I noticed for the first time that, oh, shoot, what's her name? The the hot green chick. Gamora. Gamora, thank you. She has a ring on every single finger on both hands except her ring fingers. Mm-hmm. So there you go. There's there's some bring, tell the guys back at the brewery that in case they didn't know it. I, I just have to tell this story because it's so funny. I hadn't seen Guardians of the Galaxy yet, and my son was about fourteen, I think, at the time. And we were, I think, we were in a bit of a fight or a tiff or something. We'd been out to dinner with my parents, and we get in the car and we're heading home, and I hear him singing under his breath, and I'm like are you singing the Pina Colada song? <laughs> he was 14. I'm like, how do you know the Pina Colada song? So then he tells me about Guardians of the Galaxy. And of course, then we had to watch it because I was like, oh my God. It was just hysterical. I was cracking up. That's awesome. Yeah. And so it seems like you guys have not jumped on the hard seltzer bandwagon. Huh. Well, it's funny you say that because we actually did start making hard seltzer. Oh, you <laughs> did? Okay. Yeah, we we made we made our first seltzer. I want to say it was September when we released it, um, and we have a second one. We're honestly we're waiting on aluminum for the second one. But oh um, wow, yeah. Hopefully, in the next you know, week or two, we'll we'll have aluminum on site. We can finish that. But 
yeah, we started making hard seltzer. It was we did a collaboration. I, I you know I've, I've been interested. I spent a lot of time this summer drinking a lot of hard seltzer, trying to figure out, you know, what I mean. I know what the appeal is, but trying to figure out if it would spark any interest to me. And um, and it it did sometimes. You know, I'd sit by the pool drinking them, you know, all day, and I'm like, yeah, this is or whatever. But I, I I definitely realized that what I knew real quickly what I think they're missing for me for like my palate to drink. Most of them are just most, frankly, most of them are either a little too sweet on the back end. And, uh, otherwise they kind of eventually taste like uh, medicinal or, or like chemical sort right, of. Right, right. Yeah. And which, which is fine. Cause I, that's how they're making it. I mean, so here, here's how, here's how in all my research and talking to all a bunch of people, here's how they're made. Normally the big guys will usually take, um, they'll, they'll, they'll have, uh, trucked in pallets of on like drums, four big 55 gallon drums on a pallet of sugar, liquid sugar. Like literally it'll be, right. and it'll be a blend of sugars. You'll have sucrose, fructose, dextrose, everything all in there. Like just this weird blend of sugar. Mm-hmm. And then they'll pump it into a tank and then they'll fill it up with water and they'll usually go to somewhat of a high gravity. High gravity means the density. So like the higher the density, the more sugar is all it means really. Right. And this is how we tell if something's going to be high alcohol or not. How we find out what the alcohol is, the difference between your your final gravity and your original gravity. How much sugar that you started with versus how much they ended with. How much they ate is then going to tell us how much alcohol they produced. So they'll right. start with a high gravity, usually like 17, 20 Play-Doh, uh, which, is, which is pretty high. Generally, that's going to give you like um, a nine – percent beer in this case because the sugar is so simple you're going to get like a 10 11 12 percent thing because meaning it's so simple that the yeast is going to eat everything and they'll use like a pretty aggressive yeast they'll make this 10 11 percent sugar water and then they'll pump how they'll do math and they'll pump however much of that they need into another tank and then they'll top that off with water and to dilute it down to whatever abv they want and then while they get there, they'll take extracts, these like essences or, you know, whatever flavorings, and they'll add those to the tank at a specific ratio so that the whole thing tastes like apricot or black cherry or whatever it is. And it's just met this like extract or essence, and then they'll package that. So that's how they're all made for the most part. Gotcha. So sorry. Sorry. I missed your hard seltzer when it came out. No, it's fine. <laughs> Actually, I think I still have some. So we, um, we, we made it twice. We use it as a mixer. <laughs> we add vodka. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good way to use it. I mean, yeah, I'm all for like wine spritzers and stuff too. So like, I, I make those at home. So I'll take like any like white wine bottle I still have open or something, and I'll you know I drink like flavored waters all day. Like they're just going out of style. Right. Like I drink those, you know, Lacroix or Polars or whatever they are, right. and and so I'll take those. I'll pop them open and pour like a little bit of white wine over ice, and then pour like fill it up with just like flavored water and drink that at home all the time. Make my own little seltzer. So what was the first beer you ever drank and how old were you? Oh, first beer I ever drank. I mean, I'm pretty sure when I was like six or so, I'm <laughs> pretty sure. I'm pretty sure I like tried whatever my mom or my, you know, stepdad were drinking, which is like natural ice. All my mom drinks is natty ice. Ah. So like, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure that's what I had first. But yeah. like, honestly, I wasn't really... When I was in like high school and stuff, I didn't really do much. Like I didn't drink, I didn't do drugs, I didn't party. I like stayed at home and hung out with my dad, played football, that's all I cared about. And so then when I got so I didn't really do any of that. And then and actually, so this is a funny story. My dad actually was a home brewer in the 90s. 
Oh, wow. Um, and I remember, I remember him really liking it, but I never really had anything he made before. And we used to go to uh, the Tampa Bay Bucks games when I was a kid and he would bring, he would bottle his stuff and he would, he, he was like the coolest dude on at the tailgate because he would have these beers that he made and he would name them like all Stott ale and like, <laughs> like Brooks, Brooks Brown ale or Porter or something. And like, you know, Lynch Lynch's Pilsner or some stupid stuff. It was anyway, so it was like all these brown bottles that he would save and he would fill them up and have all these like brands. He would like print off little labels and he would show up with them at the brewery at the, at the brewery at the tailgate and people like loved it. And but he stopped homebrewing by the time I was in of any age to even like care what my dad was doing anymore. Cause you know, yeah. I was a teenager, so who cared what he was doing? Right. And then I, um and then it, when I was in, when I was, when I turned 21, the first beer that I went and purchased though, I do remember this, I went by like a shell and I purchased uh, a 12 pack of Sierra Nevada Torpedo. Ah, <laughs> cool. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Cause yeah, I, I'm definitely older than you and I didn't know if it would still be the same, but yeah, I, if my answer to that question would be, I was five and my dad gave me a sip of his, probably a Budweiser from a glass and just to see me make a face. Yeah, of course. Of course. Well, it's funny now. Cause I'll, I'll let my, I'll, I'll let my 12 year old try some stuff and he'll be like, well, it's funny. Cause he, 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 he knows how seriously I take it. So I think he's, he's, well, he may not anymore, but he early on, he was always kind of like, he would try to take it seriously too. And he's like, oh yeah, it smells like this. It smells like this. And then he would taste it. And, but he, but he, he's very sensitive to the bitter character. He's not used to that. So he's kind of like, Ugh. right. Right. So uh, earlier we mentioned the uh, Fooder for Thought event that got canceled, unfortunately, in March. Any idea on March 2021? Uh, probably. I don't know, man. I'll be honest with you. We, we've had a, a couple preliminary conversations, but um, it'll if we do, it'll, it'll look nothing like it used to be. We're, we're not going to throw any events in, the, in you know, Q1 or Q2 of 2021. Uh, nothing big, at least. Uh, so if it's going to happen, it's going to have to evolve into something different. You know, Food for Thought was built out of our first few years, or really our first <laughs> two months of, of being, a, you know, being open when we open our brewery in St. Pete, say, here's a 100% oak fermented farmhouse sale and a custom built fooder. And people are like, all right, I'm going to Ferg's. And then they would just like leave. Like, I don't even know what that, I don't even know what that's, that that's means funny. to get out of here. So we realized, and I was like, what, why are people turning away? And then I was like, I'm an idiot. I'm so naive. I can't believe that. I thought that they would get excited about something they have never been exposed to. And, uh, and so then we, we started the event called Fooder for Thought. The idea being it'll be an educational event where the, I, so I, what happened was I would start listening. I was like, well, you know, Crooked Stave and Anchorage and Jolly Pumpkin and Jester King and Allagash. They're like, I've never heard of any of those things. And I was like, oh, okay, well, yeah, no wonder you think I'm out of my mind. Right. So <laughs> I started calling those breweries and I was like, send me your beers. I'm going to throw an event. And I want people to try them so that they know I'm not crazy and that these things exist and I'm not just making something right. up. And so <laughs> that's what Food Over Thought was. And it's grown in this thing where the, the producers fly into town. We put a stage outside. We bring in usually our buddy Michael Kaiser from Good for Hunting in Chicago. He flies down. He curates like a like a one-on-one -on -one conversation session in front of everyone in the crowd so they can ask direct questions to the producers that – are making the beer that they're drinking. Um, and they can, it's just, it's all about educating, educating them. And, and like I said at the very beginning, right, it's all about trying to enhance your experience by knowing a little bit more about it. Yeah, that's really cool. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting how uh, we progressed through the year and our expectations have been set 
more realistically now because when things everything blew up in March April, I think a lot of us had the the mentality of okay, we'll just hunker down for a month or two, hide out at home, and then, then we'll go, go and then we'll go, go back away. to normal. Yeah. And now we're like, eh, we don't know about March right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, March is March is a. Uh, it's too soon. Honestly, it's just like. It's too soon. You know, we got vaccines starting to roll out, which is great. And uh-huh. we'll see we'll see how how and when and if that starts to slow down the numbers, which, you know, that's not gonna trickle down to me for a while. You know, best case scenario, I'm six months out for probably be, even being able to, you know, consider getting one. But if we can start seeing frontline workers, you know, stay safe and then figure out how to keep our hospitals, you know, not as as filled to capacity. Um, which you know just comes down to all of us as society to just be a little bit more responsible, yeah. And making sure that you know, look, I'm I get it. I'm in a hospitality guy. I I, I own a bar for, for Christ's sake, you know. Right, like it's, right. But like, there's there's a level of responsibility that I have, not just to my consumers, but also to my staff and my family that we have to we got to be smart, and it's it's hard to do. So yeah. it is. Yeah, we'll I see. wish everyone thought like you. So. <laughs> So, Chris, what's your take on the boom in craft breweries in St. Pete since GreenBench opened in 2013? Do you think we will hit a saturation point? Uh, we may hit a saturation point. I don't think we're there yet. I think, yeah, I have a hard time not being honest. I think that yeah. if uh, I think that I think that we have a lot more room for for really high quality beer product and concepts than we currently do. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, I think that I think first of all, I don't think we're even near the volume of beer required to saturate the area. But but on top of that, I think I mean, I don't know. I, I think you can look at Green Bench and what we've done and what we've opened and I think I'd like to think that we think outside the box a little bit, that we have a, a really uh broad sense of purpose um on what we do and uh across the board. And so, yeah, sometimes I'm, sometimes I just don't feel like that same creativity or that same thought process is put into the experience that people can have. And I, you know, if that's the case, then yeah, we're not even close to being able to provide this area, I think with what it can consume. Right. Yeah. You guys are super creative. And so where do you draw inspiration from for new beers? Oh man. Um, it, man, I don't know, really. It, it comes in waves of, <laughs> uh, it comes in waves of, you know, what I'm interested in at the time. Sometimes, sometimes it's, I think I would say that recently in the last couple of years, ah, oh man, see, it's probably even longer. It's probably my whole life, really. I was going to make a statement. I sort of answered that question, you know, the other way a little bit here in my head. Like I was going to say, I tend to, you know, I, I try to look forward, but sometimes my inspiration comes from looking back, you know, like, I, and I, and I, now that I'm really think about what we just talked about this whole time, it probably has always kind of been from looking back at the past. You know, when we opened Green Bench, we were the first one in, you know, the first real true microbrewery in St. Pete, Florida. And we had an opportunity and a responsibility to create a beer culture here that didn't exist. Right. And so I, sp- I took a lot of inspiration from the past, took a lot of inspiration from you know, continental Europe and, uh, from different places in the country and that had these rich beer histories, looked at what they, they got to, how they got there and then what their culture really is and said, like, let's emulate, let's create the best of those things here. So it was looking at, you know, it was looking at German culture. It was looking at beer gardens and, 
you can have kids and families and it's not taboo. And so we, we, we drew inspiration from that with the beer garden and making it family friendly, which pissed a lot of people off. But at the same time, we had to just do it so that we made sure that we set a precedent that this is okay for the first breweries. We didn't want to be like 20 and older on the first brewery. And then everyone in town's 21 and older and then families can't come hang out. And right. that just didn't make sense. So that's, let's go ahead and cool. so, you know, I, I drew inspiration from that. And then same thing on the beer, right? Like I, I'm making all these traditional decocted lagers right now. You may look back and see that Green Mitch wasn't really making lagers the first three, four years of us being open. And it was really because I wasn't confident that I could do it, that I was good enough. Mm -hmm. um, and it took me four or five years of studying and researching and before I felt comfortable in even trying it. And then it took me another three, four years before I felt like, yo, we're better than anybody. And, <laughs> and that's kind of where we're at now, yeah. but it just takes time and it, but I don't, I don't know. I just don't think as many people put that much into it. Yeah. And on the, on the inspiration part, I mean, that it makes total sense if you know the history of beer. Right. And also I have uh, some questions. I asked one of our friends uh, who's a home brewer and I think he's won uh, an award or two or a few, yes. J Jason Peterson. Mm. And I asked him if he had any questions for you, and he did. Cool. And this one relates to what you were just talking about with the, the loggers. Jason said, I've been seeing quite a few more loggers on tap at Greenbench recently. The left side of the draft list is all laggers now. Do you think there's going to be a resurgence in beer people returning to classic styles, or is there no turning back the hype train of pastry stouts, fruited Berliners, and lactose and everything? Hmm. All right. Well, good question. Number one, if you look at our left side of our board, the middle and the right, you will not see any of those other three on there. Um, so we don't have any lactose pastry stouts. We don't have any fruited lactose Berliners or pastry, anything we have. We don't have any of that on our tap list. So if, you know, maybe we're not, you know, the hype boys favorite brewery in town, but, and there's a reason behind all that too, but Yes. My short answer is yes. I do think that I think there, and not only do I think there will be a resurgence in classic styles, I think it's already happened and it's still right. happening. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, you got to think, you know, I, 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 I take what we do very, very seriously. I, I take the responsibility that I know that I have, um, this sort of contract as, as a producer that I have with the consumer and especially as like a, you know, a citizen of, of the city. It's it's my responsibility to make what is quality. That's my that's my job. Make sure that whatever you whenever you're coming, you're gonna get something that's super high quality. It is not my job to give the consumer things that aren't quality just because they like the way it tastes. Right. So for example, all that stuff he's talking about, like I wouldn't drink it because it eh. is terrible, first of all. Number two, it's not even really that like, I mean, as not saying beer is healthy necessarily, but that is very unhealthy. It is, it is extremely irresponsible in my opinion to pour somebody, you know, five, 10 glasses of an imperial pastry stout that has seven, 800 calories per glass in it. Yikes. Wow. It is. So, so I, I just, I, I'm, I'm, all, I'm almost, I'm like appalled that that has become a trend, but here's the thing. It's not the consumer's fault. It is our fault as producers that we produce that. For example, if my kid, my 12-year-old says he wants cereal for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, he's not going to get it. I don't, <laughs> right. I don't, it, it's my responsibility to make sure that that doesn't happen. It is right. our, just because someone's knocks on your door and they say, I want sugar, 
And that's what's happening with these pastry stouts is literally a lot of them are cereal. They're cereal beers. They literally will take trick cereal and they'll take cinnamon toast crunch and they'll take whatever and they'll throw them in these beers and they taste like cereal. Right. Tastes like Rice Krispies. Dude, get out of here with that mess. Like yeah. it's not a – like it's, it is our responsibility to be better than that I think that's for everyone cool. around us. And so it's not like – yeah, I'm not going to I'm not gonna let my kitty chocolate for dinner either. So it's not yeah. like that's, – that's what, that's what it comes down to. Right. So yeah, right. speaking of cereal, grape, grape nuts is like beer cereal. Yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> it's got the basic exactly. ingredients. Right, right. So it's, it's coming back around though. It's coming back around though. I mean, like, and the reason cool. you know that mostly is because the same brewers that make that stuff, they come to me, they drink my beer. They come wow. here and they're like, yeah, they're okay. like, I don't, they'll make it. They're like, I don't drink it. I make it for them. I was like, you, you know, you gotta be you know what? That, that's funny. I can't remember. And I probably wouldn't mention names anyway, but this is over a year ago. I think we were inter- interviewing a, a brewer that makes stuff like that. And he actually said, no, I don't drink it. I, I drink this other stuff. I drink the classic stuff. <laughs> I just make it. So, and a lot of them, I, and I, I'll tell you straight up, like they'll come to me and they'll drink my beer and they'll, they'll hang out all day. And they're like, man, I wish I could do what you did. And I'm like, you can, this is your, right. like, it's your choice. You're, you're choosing to, to, you're choosing the easy route, which right. is to give them what they're asking you for instead of actually making what you know is quality is good. And is like, it's your responsibility. I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. I look. Yeah. I understand on one side. The other side of it is this. You know, you're trying to make money. You're trying to pay your bills. You're trying to pay your staff. You're trying to have money for your family. And that side of it, I get. I respect that. I understand that. Sometimes, look. Sometimes I make decisions I don't want to make either. I don't want to do either. It happens. We all do stuff we don't want to do sometimes because we have right. to. But right. like, I do think that there is. But you, just because you have to do that sometimes doesn't mean you can't have some standards. You know, like that are just. You know, you can like it can still be successful. <laughs> That's right. my point. Right. Success does right. not just look like that. Right. right. So Jason also wants to know: Will you make another batch of the obscure? Oh, that's a good question. I'll be honest, Jason. I don't know if I could. Tell us what what that was now. So the obscure was a rum barrel aged barley wine that we made um, about four years ago, four or five years ago. It was it's it is our highest rated beer on Untapped, hands down, of anything we've ever made. It's like a top ten, top eight barley wine in the world um, on their silly rating sites. But um, yeah, it's basically you know we brewed this beer. It was like a it was a really nice uh, sort of simple recipe. Uh, we got over thirty play doh on it, which was the first time we'd ever done something that big before. So really high sugar content. Uh, fermented it out put it in rum barrels and then we pitched what's called a, uh, there's a, the most famous barley wine in the world is, is this brand called Thomas Hardy, Thomas Hardy's ale, mm-hmm. um, out of the UK. And it comes out every year. Although there was a lag in which it wasn't brewed for like six years and then it came back. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there, you know, some people have sellers like, Oh yeah, I have a 1982 Thomas Hardy ale, you know, like these bottles they still have oh, wow. this like really old beer. Um, and obviously Thomas Hardy is named after the author, Thomas Hardy and poet the Victorian um, author. And I love Victorian literature. Thomas Hardy was one of my favorite Victorian writers actually. Um, But my favorite novel that he wrote was, was this book called Jude the Obscure. That's where the name Uh, comes from. So we actually had yeast from Thomas Hardy bottles propagated. We added the Thomas Hardy yeast to the barrels after fermentation. So Uh. then it sat in rum barrels for like 18 months or so. And it just was decadent. And the rum barrel, the rum barrels came from Jamaica. They were Appleton estate barrels. And, um, I mean, it was just an incredible beer. So we packaged that beer and it, it was wow. so, it's so, so good. So we sold out of that. The truth is, is I, do, I legitimately don't 
feel confident that I could make it the same way again. I mean, I could try, but right. um, you know, sometimes sometimes these beers aren't things that you can replicate that well. Right. Yeah, it could be almost like like wine or cigars to different vintages come right. out a little different. Right. So, do you have a favorite collaboration brew? Interesting. That is a good question. Um. Hmm. Got to see who 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 you can piss off and not piss off. Yeah. <laughs> True. So, some sometimes, honestly, sometimes I forget which ones we did. Sometimes people are like uh, some of our staff are like, "Oh yeah, this beer." I'm like. Oh yeah, that's right. That beer we made with them. That's cool. Yeah, I forgot about that. It was uh-huh. good. I forgot about it. I don't know, man. I would say that like there were a few of them that really meant a lot to me that were kind of, you know, you got to brew with somebody that was really special to you. Um, honestly, I think that's really are my favorite ones. Um, almost more than just the beer itself, because I don't recall a collaboration we put out that I wasn't like really excited about as far as how it tasted. I think we've we've every collab we've ever made, I've been really happy with how it tasted. Right. But so it's more the experience. It's always it's for me, it's far more the experience. Like there's a few of them, right? You go down the list, it's like brewing with Jester King was huge for me because they're, you know, one of my two th- or three favorite breweries in the country. Um brewing with uh Corey King at Side Project was huge. Brewing with uh Chase Haley at American Solera was huge. That was actually obscure and actually our hard seltzer, we collabed with him on that one. And then um uh, Beerstadt Lager House. I mean, brewing with Ashley Carter, she's the, she makes the best, she is the best German lager brewer in the country and um, hands down. And, and I've learned pretty much everything about lager production from her. And she is cool. just incredible. So brewing with her was when she said, Hey, you want to brew a collaboration? I just was like, I'm of over. course. Yes. <laughs> so you posted uh, on Facebook about a new mead that you fermented giants in the sky. And this is one example. There are some others too, where you say a neutral red wine barrel. I don't understand that how a red wine barrel could be neutral. Uh, so that that's a, so that's actually a cider. And then the, Giants in the Sky is a cider. And then oh, sorry. Cider. that's fine. That's fine. Uh, and then the the neutral. So it's actually, that's actually a term essentially borrowed from the wine world. They would call all barrels that would go through at least five vintages, especially if those barrels had different uh, varietals in those barrels, uh, neutral. They would call them neutral red wine barrels. Because they cancel each other out with the different varietals, maybe? Yeah, because you couldn't really taste Mm. specifically what varietal it was anymore. Uh, You couldn't uh, really, you know, it's like it would be used so much, it then would get cleaned and sulfured and then reused and then cleaned after vintages. So it's just, that's actually a a terminology in the wine world that we use. I specifically, for the most part, for the majority of the beers we produce in Web City Cellar, I'm actually looking for neutral barrels, not specific wine not a very specific varietal. Right. right. Okay. That makes okay. that makes sense. Yeah. 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 So right now we are time-wise. Previously, Fred Zamataro from Schramsberg Vineyards set the record for this year's longest interview. <laughs> we in previous years we had we had to split them into two with Dr. Barbecue and a couple others. But uh you you now set the record. But do you mind if we still have two or three more questions? Yeah, you're good. Take your time. Okay, cool. So here's another one that uh Jason I'm not trying to get my record broken already. I'm trying to keep going. (laughs) Oh, actually, we're into the new year now. We're 2021. Right, right, right. Yeah. So Fred's got it for 2020. You have it for 2021. So (laughs) Jason says, and he let me know, he he actually sent me over a couple photos where uh, these big ads from, I think it was uh, 
visit St. Pete Clearwater, like in the Tampa airport. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> with your face, Jason says his head was plastered everywhere. And the question is, what's it like to be the face of the Tampa Bay beer scene? <laughs> I mean, it was an honor, man. It was cool as hell. It was, it was, it was rad. You know, I mean, Look, I, I love what I do. I take it real. Like I said, I take it very seriously and it's, it's nice to feel recognized for that sometimes, you know, you know, you know, sometimes you'll, you know, what LeBron said after one of his title this year is like, put some respect on my name, you know, every once in a while you feel that way, you know, you, you do want that recognition and you want to, you know, and obviously like part of that, you know, part of that is, you know, the, the fact that, you know, someone that has that sort of integrity, someone that cares about what they're producing, I think as much as I do, is the person chosen to be their representative is huge for me. I think it says a lot about the direction that um, I think even like producers in the state want to go. Um, I will say it it was shocking. It was surprising because it really wasn't supposed to be me. It wasn't like they picked me necessarily. It was like a, because it, the way that worked is Vincente Clearwater was trying to find locations to do uh, this campaign, this, this Gulp Coast campaign, as they called it. And, um, you know, we've, we've done work with them in the past. That was kind of cool and it, it was helpful. And, and then they basically just wanted to use our site and they were actually going to hire a, like an actor to be the, the picture for it. It wasn't supposed to be an actual brewer. And then the agency that they hired, like looked through their actors and were like, we actually really like this guy's look. And I was like uh. in the background pointing at stuff and they're like, yes. <laughs> So it wasn't, they didn't like, they weren't like, oh, you're the face of this. I happened to end up being that, but it was originally just, they were like, we like his look, which you know, who, knows cool. what, who knows what that means. And uh, <laughs> so I was like, sure, you guys can take pictures. How long am I going to be here? They're like, I don't know, like two hours. I was like, oh, can you make an hour and a half? And they're like, yeah. So yeah, they showed up with a trailer. I had to do makeup and get in front of a barrel. And all my staff was just like, oh my goodness, what are you doing? <laughs> That's awesome. That is awesome. Cool. So you know, we were talking earlier about how, you know, uh, wine and beer have a lot of similarities as far as the, you know, the making, and there's a lot more that goes into both of them than most people think about. Do you ever do uh, beer and cheese pairings or food pairings with, with beers? Yes. The answer, yeah, the short answer is yes. We've done food and food and beer. We've done cheese and beer. We've done food and cider, cheese and cider, um, that kind of thing. We've even hosted a, a beer and wine pairing before, which is really fun. But obviously, we haven't really done that since COVID. Right, right, right. But uh, and we were those were ramping up for us. Honestly, coming into 2020, we started doing a lot of them in 2019, especially like in the fall of 2019. We we're doing actually quite a few of those and had a lot on the schedule. Actually, Wednesday night of Beer Week during March on the uh, I think it was the 14th of March, we actually had a cider dinner. Like a at upstairs and webs, right. Mm-hmm. right? Yeah, you know. But I think if you know most people, if you ask them, you know what what's your favorite drink to pair with cheeses, they'd say wine. I think we need to work on beer coming up more often for that. Right. Right. Yeah, we'll always be working on beer, man. There's always this. I mean, there's this. There's look. I, I like a wine pairing just as much as the next guy. Don't get me wrong, but um. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be thrown in there as a possibility because it's it, it can be equally as um, as incredible, right? right. And right. you guys show as far as your um, <clears throat> the uh, canned uh, beers. There there's six on the website. Those are the six main core items, right? And those, what's the distribution on that? Is it regional, national? 
The majority of our distribution is regional. So we, we sell more beer here in Pinellas County than anywhere else. And then um, uh, Hillsboro is going to be number two. Probably uh, or, or the Orlando market is probably number three. And then four is probably Sarasota, Bradenton area. Five is probably Atlanta. Oh, that's oh, cool. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah. Actually, for a while there, Atlanta was our like number two market for like a year and a half. We were wow. killing it up there. And it's not to say – and it's slowed down a little bit because there's been a lot of local breweries that have opened up there and we don't have as much um, um, – as much support up there, you know, like we don't, we don't have a rep that lives in Atlanta. So, um, which is, you know, all well and good because it coincided with us actually selling more beer here locally, which actually coincided with our wholesaler selling our rights to other wholesalers. So. Right. And you have a few, uh, SKUs in Publix, right? We have one in Publix right now. Uh, it's just sunshine city, but, um, we've been talking to them a lot this year. I think we're probably going to bump that up to at least two, uh, I think postcard pills is going to probably hit hit the hit Publix uh, when the sets get reset in in April. I think is when that happens. And then, and are you chain wide on that or or more regional? It's still regional. Yeah, we're so we're we're basically a Sunshine City is really only in Pinellas and Hillsborough markets. Um, and for the first, and and we only got in there a year less than a year. It was like literally this. Now, do you are you spring. you deal directly with Publix to get in there, or do you have to go through through a third party? Well, it definitely goes through a wholesaler no matter what because it'd be illegal to do so otherwise. Ah, okay. Uh, but yeah, we have to have our own initial conversations with Publix. We then have to have a conversation with our wholesalers and then get them all together. And then the three of us have to hash out to make sure it works. But yeah, we have to go through a wholesaler. Interesting. Yeah. I read an article. I don't know if it was earlier this year or late last year where uh, they were saying some, the gist of it was something like that the, the, big, the big brewers kind of somehow took control of redoing the planograms for what was going to be in the beer aisle? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they do every year. Every reset, they control that reset. You know, and part of that is because of the amount of brands they have. I mean, if you break down, there was a there was a documentary that came out, I want to say it was like 2006, maybe. Uh, it was called Beer Wars. And mm. they, they kind of talked about that a lot, where they were like, if you go to a grocery store, and you just look at the beer sets, like 85% of what's made there is all owned by macro conglomerates. Right. So the whole aisle virtually, and honestly, back then it was probably even more than it is now. Mm. Um, and actually that may not be true because now some of the craft stuff is actually actually owned by those big guys. So like, right. you know, you go, to, you go to Publix right now and there's, you know, five Wicked Weed brands in there. That's owned by Anheuser-Busch. Right. Um, and that's in the craft section because it's a craft brewery, but it's owned by AB. So yeah, that, that's the thing is they just they fill it with multiple SKUs. So and a lot of it isn't that different. Uh, like for example, how many how many uh, formats of Mick Ultra are there in Publix? You got you got six pack bottles, you got twelve pack bottles, right. you got uh, twelve pack cans, you got eighteen pack cans, you uh, twelve ounce cans. You got like um, those skinny cans as well, those like the smaller, skinnier ones that are twelves mm-hmm. as well. They ha- they have two skews a piece each. So you're talking about having seven, eight, nine skews that are the exact same beer in different formats, just right. to take up the space, the real estate. Right. Right. Wow. And that's crazy. just one brand, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. You multiply that by Miller High Life and Miller Light and Bud Light and Budweiser and you know. Yeah, it just it never ends. They cores all, all of them, right? 
but you you guys do have some pretty impressive capacity. Um, so, I guess so. <laughs> for, for a microbrewery, I mean, it's, yeah, you, you, I start reading, and the website is greenbenchbrewing.com. And you got to just if you read how many first, I had to look up what BBL is. That's barrels. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Read like how many barrels you guys can produce in in a certain amount of time. It's to me, it's impressive anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 good for our size. I think. Um, you know, we're maxed out on capacity as far as like uh, infrastructure. We're definitely not brewing our max capacity. We were hoping to be pretty close to it at the end of this year, but with COVID, everything kind of slowed down pretty drastically. But um, right. we actually technically will close out this year having produced less beer than we did last year because of right. COVID. Right. Of course. Yeah. Right. Chris Johnson, thank you so much. Yes. Thanks, Chris. And happy new year. Yes, happy same new year. Guys. Have a good 2021, guys, everybody out there. We'll right. be right back. Hey, Lori, have you ever been to Noble Crust? I have. What do you like there? Pork belly, pimento cheese, and fried green tomatoes are my favorite. Oh, yeah. I love that one, too. They actually call it the FGBLT. It's fried green tomatoes, pork belly glazed with a Tabasco honey sauce and pimento cheese. Mm -hmm. And it's the first item on the menu, so you can't miss it. And I think they should actually call it the OMG. Yeah, you've said that before. The chicken marsala is really good, too. It has chicken and chicken sausage, criminy mushrooms, and four cheese grits. It's so delicious. I love that they mix classics from the American Deep South and Italy. Noble Crust is famous for their fried chicken. I love it. Yeah, and the eggplant parmesan is out of this world. When we do a best eggplant parm list, it'll definitely be on there. Yes, it will. Speaking of lists, Noble Crust made six of them recently. Best Italian, Best Casual Dining, Best Pizza, Best Bloody Marys, Best Meatballs, and, believe it or not, Best Salads. Ooh, ooh can I tell you another one of my favorite items? Yeah. The spaghetti and meatballs. It's oh, so good. man, you're not kidding. You know what? They have a brunch on Saturdays and Sundays starting at 1030, which I love. And the deviled eggs are to die for. Let's go to Noble Crust right now. I'm in. Let's do it. So, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Prior to this, we had my birthday weekend, followed by Christmas weekend, and then New Year's weekend. We did. And we made them a four-day weekend, and a big part of those celebrations was eating and drinking. A lot of it. Mm-hmm. And in the midst of all of that, I did hit my Weight Watchers goal and lost 28.5 pounds. That's pretty awesome. Green, and then we, I, we did duo some of that to Greenstock. Thank you. We do. And it is definitely time for Greenstock for a nice, crispy, crunchy, delicious salad. And this segment is sponsored by them. And Greenstock, in case you don't know, is a chef-driven and ingredient-focused salad and wraps place. It's fast, casual eatery right in the heart of downtown St. Pete. Everything is fresh. Nothing comes out of a can. That's a major rule there. And you can see all of the ingredients right in the case. You can see bright yellow ears of corn, plump red Roma tomatoes. And Greenstock is what we had for lunch just the other day. We did, in the and, middle of a weekend, because it was a very good idea. <laughs> yeah. And so what did you get? Oh, I did um, you-inspired salad, like normal. Um, I did romaine and spinach, tomato, cucumber, watermelon radish, pickled red onion, beets, peppers, crispy wasabi peas, and added the house-made fresh tuna, which is my favorite. And since I am at Weight Watchers Goal, I decided to use their ranch dressing this time instead <laughs> of foregoing for my normal oil and vinegar. 
but it is still a much healthier oh a much healthier healthy much healthier version yes and so good it's one of my favorite dressings yeah i decided to go with the meze mix and the reason i decided on that one was because i think that they have the best hummus over there Mm -hmm. and that doesn't come with every salad that's like you can add it on which i do sometimes but you can also add in the tuna and i want it the best of both worlds so that one comes with the hummus so then i could add the tuna Right. So, and I also decided to switch it up for the first time ever and, and have a wrap. Yeah. <laughs> it was so good. Holy crap, man. I know. You uh, ate almost the whole thing. Well, were, yeah, because with the wrap. You kept you saying have, you were stuffed. <laughs> you have to get the big green with the wrap. So we normally get the small one. So that means I would usually eat like half of the wrap, but I ate 90% of the whole you wrap did. in one sitting. And I ate my whole salad this time too. Yeah, I know. That's amazing. So yeah, the meze mix, that has uh, romaine, feta, cucumber, tomatoes, olives, nice addition, peppers, hummus, fresh garbanzo, turmeric tahini is the dressing, which is, oh man. It looks like yellow mustard. It does. It's a bright yellow (laughs) one. So tasty. It even has kind of like the turmeric, even it's reminiscent of um, um, curry. The turmeric is reminiscent Ah, of curry. Really good. And they reveal the secret behind the tuna recently they did now keep, yeah. keep in mind this is not nobody's there's no cans remember i said that it's a major tuna. rule nobody's yeah. opening cans of anything so it's fresh tuna and they use dijon mustard mayo pickles parsley and by the way it's sushi grade tuna and then they confit it and then squeeze some lemon on it right it doesn't have that uh mayonnaise mix to it at all it's right. almost like it's just because of, con- yeah. of the confit yeah yeah and they've also combined their butcher shop business now mm-hmm. with Greenstock. Right. So you have Greenstock and St. Pete Meat and Provisions. And they have the highest quality steaks, chicken, pork, farm fresh eggs, a bunch of other sundries. And you can buy those right at Greenstock too. They while even you're have duck eggs. Salad or wrap. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We have to try those. Yeah. Okay. Check out Greenstock on the 400 block of Central Avenue in downtown St. Pete. They are now open for dine-in and takeout. And they, the hours would be 10.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. Monday through Saturday. And you can order on their website, which is eatatgreenstock.com. And the butcher shop is stpmeat.com. This is Chris Walker. And you're listening to In between Christmas and New Year's, a new restaurant quietly opened, and it sure didn't go unnoticed. Social Roost is right in downtown St. Pete on the ground floor of the One Condo Tower that's on First Avenue North across from Copper Shaker. And they have a really cool concept where they're focusing on all different versions of chicken from around the world. Examples include Peruvian chicken, chicken pot pie, chicken chicken tangine, Fried chicken, rotisserie chicken, chicken and waffles, chicken parm, chicken cow soy. And they do have steak and seafood as well, which is really good. We tried the scallops too. And I want to say the chicken samosas are amazeballs. So check out that extensive review on stpetersburgfoodies.com. And next week on the show, we'll be talking to David Benstock from Il Retorno, Greenstock, and St. Pete Meat and Provisions. If you'd like to send us fan mail, hate mail, or if you have any requests for interviews or restaurant reviews, 
Just send an email to info at stpetersburgfoodies.com. That's it for this episode of the St. Petersburg Foodies Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our guest, Chris Johnson. Thanks to Greenstock for lunch. And thanks to our sponsors, Roland Oats, The Zest Podcast, Noble Crust, Booyah Ramen, and, and Engine, Engine Number no. 9. Our announcer is Candice Aviles from Meet the Chef and Channel 10 News. And our theme music is provided by the Chris Walker Band. We'd like to remind you to check out all the latest restaurant reviews, foodies news, top 10 lists, and updated happy hours on stpetersburgfoodies.com. Please give us a rating and review on whichever app you're using to listen to the show. And remember to share the show with your foodie friends. Until Until next next time, time, may your food be hot and your bubbly cold. I'll show you how a man drinks beer. Uh, 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 that's good beer. Uh, <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>